0: everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 112. It's hard for me to once again issue an apology of sorts for taking so long to get this next episode out. It's been another two weeks again to create episode 112 and even as a listener following as the podcast grows I know for those of you who have been right there with me all the way whether you started early and have been steady at it, or whether you started later and have binged listen to catch up, there are many of you who would like me to produce the episodes faster than I am doing these days, like I was doing in the beginning of the podcast series more than a year and a half ago. Well, I would too. And as I've mentioned so many times before on this podcast, right now at this moment of life for me... I am balancing a number of different and equally important obligations. Some of those obligations came about after I retired and were not there as a restriction in the very beginning of the podcast. And so lately it's become more than just a challenge to adhere to a schedule. Be that as it may, I'll use one of the many colloquialisms that I've used so many times here in the past and that I say and have said so very often in life. Mostly, I've said it to my children, but right now, I am saying it to myself, and the phrase is, well, just stay at it, and I am telling myself that even as time becomes, again, in my life, a more precious commodity, but while it's become more difficult once again to find the time, my enthusiasm has not waned. In fact, my enthusiasm to produce more episodes is in full force these days. Still, I appreciate very much that you have been patient and stayed with me. And for that, I truly want to reward the listening community with more and more episodes. I have plenty of ideas. And as I have just said, I have plenty of energy to produce them. It's just time. And that is forcing the issue in some ways on what episodes to produce next. Today's episode is a bit of an unusual one for me. You see, up to this point, it's been somewhat easy to choose the material for the next episode, whatever the next episode was covering. The process followed a rather direct path, a logical path, an intuitive path, either based on the time sequence of events or items that just lead to one another in the storytelling world that I am in. We'll still use that approach, but it gets a little more difficult as we move away from the main body of episodes that covered a logical sequence of known events related to the assassination. This week, for a few days, I'm back in South Florida. And on a plane flight down yesterday, there was a young man sitting across the aisle, and as we got up to leave the plane in a friendly way, he asked me if I was an author. I assumed that he did so because I had my laptop out and a few books, and I was intermittently reading and taking some notes for what would be this next podcast. I explained to him that I wasn't an author, but rather I was a podcaster. His questioning continued, and in response, I explained what the podcast was about and the extent of the episodes to date. His immediate question for me was whether I would ever write a book on the podcast. My response was, well, possibly, but probably not. And the good news is that that's a long way off because there is a lot more podcasting to do related to JFK, The Enduring Secret. A lot more. In order for us to say, mission accomplished. And what was the mission anyway? Does anyone remember that far back? Well, I do, of course. Because every time I publish an episode, I repeat that same episode description. We set out in the beginning to be a comprehensive tutorial on the Kennedy assassination. That was a pretty broad mission and a lot to take on. And I think we are getting a pretty good grade so far. It's just that. We're not deep researchers taking this to the next level. What we are doing is trying to tie the story together in a way that's comprehensive and comprehensible. You may recall that in the earliest of episodes, I used the analogy that we were taking a trip across the country, going from the East Coast to the West Coast, with the idea that eventually, even though we might wander a bit and not take the straightest of routes, that we would eventually end up at the Golden Gate. Well, I'm proud to say that we are well past Kansas now. We are more than halfway there, and the big question left is, where do we go from here? In what order do we tackle the remaining topics from here on out? And so today's episode is a wander on the one hand that might sound a little bit like advertisements for future episodes, snippets of so many things that we have yet to cover and that I hope will invigorate or reinvigorate your own enthusiasm for future episodes. But it's also a request by me from you for input. I've gotten a little bit of this from a few of you throughout the podcast, but frankly, not much. That is not a criticism as I did not ask for it or expect it or require it in any way. But where to go next and where to wander to and from is truly the question. And input from all of you will surely be helpful. So to that end, I have one more analogy I would like to use, which I believe so aptly describes what predicament we are in and where we go to next. It's an analogy that involves a lake. Many of you know that I spend time at a lake. You see, in the southeastern portion of the United States, most of the lakes are man-made, many of them products of the work done in the 1930s during the Roosevelt administration. And particularly, some of the ones I am familiar with were developed by the Tennessee Valley Authority, or TVA, primarily as a means of generating electricity and fostering economic development for the region. Many of those lakes were formed in the hilly or mountainous areas of the Appalachians and as such the lake might have a large body of water in the center of what was at one moment a valley and now that valley is a lake and not a valley. In these lakes they contain numerous fingers almost like tentacles on an octopus born from what used to be the areas between the hills and mountains each with an interesting geography that wanders along as it takes the explorer in a separate direction away from the main body of water, but with each of these individual trips down a different finger providing a unique and satisfying moment on the lake. While each trip down each of these fingers has beautiful water and beautiful scenery, you can only explore one at a time. And once you're done, you have to make your way back to the main body of water before you can pivot and go down the next one of these fingers. It's a process for sure. Where we are at in this long journey to the Golden Gate as it relates to the JFK assassination is that we have covered most shoreline on the main body of water. Oh, there is plenty more material to cover. The little lake that I spend time at in the summer has 75 miles of shoreline and mostly it's shoreline contained in those little fingers That I just described. The main body of water is a small portion of the total. In fact, it pales in comparison to the total shoreline miles contained in those fingers. It's a deceiving aspect that becomes apparent when exploring the lake on a boat. Well, enough of the analogies. Let's get down to the questions at hand. The assassination occurred, the body was carried back to Washington, and then the autopsy took place. The chief suspect was apprehended, interrogated, and then murdered. The defendant was never brought to trial. So the entire quest now is about putting together a million shattered pieces of the puzzle that could not be reunited formally in the absence of a trial or a more comprehensive investigation that was truly conducted to get at the truth. For anyone who has put together a puzzle, a big one, you know there are different ways to go about doing just that. My wife does puzzles, and she separates the pieces by the number of prongs on the puzzle piece. One way of connecting the parts. We all must have a method, and that is but one. But it is an effective one that seems to work for her. She's pretty good with puzzles. And we have to have one too. Surely it will be different than the way other purveyors of the Kennedy story approach this. But as long as it's effective, accurate, understandable and entertaining, I think most of us will be good with it. There are so many theories on who might have killed JFK, but in reality, there are a handful of basic groups which are considered to be of greatest potential as suspects. I believe them to be as follows, and they are in no particular order. First, the mob or organized crime, including perhaps a connection with the Teamsters. Second, the CIA, or some break-off group of the CIA. Third, the military-industrial complex, along with a mix of ultra-right-wingers, such as members from the John Birch Society. And last, it has also been suggested that some international fascist groups could also be involved, which might include selected Cubans or Russians that may even have had ties to those governments. And as you might expect, there are endless theories that involve variations on these four basic themes as they mix and match the characters. And with good reason, because in those days, so many of these characters were like peas in a pod. We'll get to that. One such variation even puts LBJ as a central character who spearheaded the assassination, or at least was a player in it. These assassination theories go from quite plausible to quite hard to believe. But that doesn't completely discount that some of them may hold significant water when it comes to the truth of the matter. That's the puzzle. So let's turn today's episode into a complete wander on many of the topics that we might touch on in future episodes. And then hopefully your interest will be highlighted and I welcome you to provide feedback to me at podcastjfk at gmail.com, and you can also post on the episode blog for episode 112 at www.podcastjfk.com. I will make some decisions on what direction to go and what finger of the lake to go down first, so to speak, and then get going on providing more episodes to you. And yes, for those who are wondering, we will try to explore all of them, or most of them anyway, in our quest to get to the Golden Gate and to fulfill our mission of delivering to you, when it's all said and finished, a comprehensive tutorial of the JFK assassination. Oh, and one more thing. Many of you have asked whether I am going to provide my own conclusions at some point. And the answer is yes. But you will have to wait and listen to the very last episode the very last one, before we turn out the lights and go to sleep. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 112 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. How about Sylvia Odio? She was a Cuban exile living in Dallas. She had very prominent parents who ended up in prison, thrown in jail by the Castro government, as they involved themselves actively in procuring arms to give to the anti-Castro Cubans. Sometime during the last week of September 1963, she got a knock on her door, and it was three men, two of them Latin and one white man, and the white man introduced himself as Leon Oswald. At some point later after the encounter, one of those Latin men called Odio on the phone and engaged in a telephone conversation with her, almost egging her on and indicating that Oswald was loco, which is nuts in Spanish, and made the statement indicating that Oswald had said that the Cubans had no guts and that they should shoot the president. This is one of the more significant and credible examples of where there may have been a second Oswald. And it's also an incredible example of where the Warren Commission took overt steps to mischaracterize the visit and to hide the clear problems that this incident created for the conclusions that the Warren Commission had made. Having Lee Harvey Oswald positively identified and in two places at once. Recall, this incident in Dallas took place on a date that the official timeline has Oswald in Mexico. Well, That is a problem, and the FBI particularly went to great lengths to make the problem go away. So, all I can say is, when we get to this one, it will be a great episode. How about the story of Jose Aliman? He was a wealthy Cuban exile who was also an FBI informant, and he met with Florida mobster Santos Traficante in September 1962 at the Scott Byron Hotel in Miami Beach. Traficante... In the middle of a conversation about the way the Kennedys were treating Jimmy Hoffa, well, Aleman would quote Traficante saying, he's not going to be reelected; he's going to be hit. Aleman made those statements under oath on March 12, 1977, in testimony made to the House Select Committee on Assassinations. That'll make another good episode in the making, too, and what happened to Aleman in the aftermath. Of course, the mob is such a big part of this story, and we obviously have to start with Johnny Roselli and Robert Mayhew and the Vegas Bug, and just the whole connection between the mob and the CIA at that moment in time in the world that we were living in. Well, there will be much more on the mob and the CIA. And of course, the discussions on the mob will include stories about Santos Traficante, Carlos Marcello, and Sam Giancana, all major players in this story. How about the incredible story of Judith Exner, a beautiful woman who turned out to be both Sam Giancana's girlfriend and JFK's girlfriend all at the same time, thanks to a little bit of help from Frank Sinatra. Folks, you can't write this stuff. Okay, I'm on a ramble now, and these are really in no particular order. How about the story where Oswald has been identified in Clinton, Louisiana, and possibly in the same car with Clay Shaw and David Ferry? There's a lot of details to this story, and that'll make another good episode. And obviously the reason for doing that is to tie David Ferry, Clay Shaw, and Oswald together. You know, we haven't touched upon Jack Ruby at all, really, and the nexus of connections that he had with the Dallas Police Department and with the Mobster Underworld and possibly with Lee Harvey Oswald himself and the rest of those characters from New Orleans. After all, Jack was a gun runner and he had been actively engaged in running guns to Cuba. Again, Another good story for an episode. Actually, many good stories and many episodes, potentially. How about all of the suspicious deaths? I've had a number of you ask if we are going to do an episode on that. And as you know, there are really good, singularly dedicated books to the topic. And yes, there are an incredible number of suspicious deaths. Perhaps the most famous one is the death of Dorothy Kilgallen. And we will definitely have to do an episode or episodes on Dorothy. She was rumored to have been about ready to break the case, if you listen to Mark Lane, and she was the only reporter granted a private interview with Jack Ruby, and she did so before her death. Boy, back to the Cubans. The Cuban connection and that thread runs deep because the setting was New Orleans, and New Orleans was a haven for anti-Castro activity at that time in the United States. There are so many stories to tell. The training out on Lake Poncha train of the Cuban exile groups the connections to similar groups in Miami, the connections to the J.M. Wave station, the CIA station, characters like Antonio Vesiana, who was actually a CPA, a, that's right, an accountant, turn killer, anti-communist, a man who started Alpha 66, one of the most infamous Cuban exile groups that aggressively advanced the idea of using force to retake Cuba. Vesiana would eventually strike up a relationship with Gaetan Fonzi, the famous investigator who worked for the House Select Committee on Assassinations. It was Vesiana who later in life would connect the two names, Maurice Bishop and David Atlee Phillips. A bit of a confirmation of the work already done by Jack Anderson in the late sixties. Oh, and how about Frank Sturgis then, and players like Howard Hunt, that might lead us into the discussion about the curious case of Liberty Lobby, where a civil case happened to bring out testimony under oath relevant to the JFK assassination. In all of this, Vesiana swears that he saw Maurice Bishop in the company of Lee Harvey Oswald in Dallas. How about the debunked stories of James Files, who was a man who sat in prison, who made what might have appeared to sound like credible representations that he worked with Charles Nicoletti, another well-known mob hitman, and he worked together with him to make the hit that day in Dallas. Equally absurd and now debunked are some of the claims of Judith Baker. But not everything she said was untrue. And that gets us into topics like Mary Sherman and her suspicious death and her connection to Oswald and what was underneath the very real connection that she had to the Oshner Clinic. Was there a far-out CIA clinical project that tied together David Ferry and others who were in that web? Or was it just fodder? We haven't covered any of them yet. And we haven't covered the Oswald, Mexico trip yet in the story. In that story, when Scott, a major CIA force in Mexico, is at the center of the mysterious disappearance of his personal Mexico files after his death, including those related to the Oswald incident. And that'll make a great episode. And who might appear in that one? Well, we'll get to know James Angleton a little better in that one. He's a He's a character, all right. He shows up and has footprints in many ways in, in many of these episodes. He was the infamous CIA man in charge and obsessed with finding what was thought to be a mole within the CIA. He ran the counterintelligence services within the CIA for a long time, and there are some very eerie moments of his existence in this story. He was a naysayer about Yuri Nosenko, and to the very day he died— he felt that Nisenko was not a legitimate defector and was, in fact, a Soviet agent actively engaged as part of his defection plan. How about the startling revelations that H.R. Haldeman wrote in his own book after he left the Nixon administration? As you recall, he was one of the two closest aides that Nixon had before the Watergate chips began to fall. He would say in his book that Nixon was actually saying in the Watergate tapes things about the Kennedy assassination. Nixon would use references to the Bay of Pigs, but what Haldeman said was that what Nixon was really trying to say every time he used that term was really a comment about the Kennedy assassination. Haldeman would go on to say that the CIA essentially expunged everything it possibly could about the Kennedy assassination in those few years following 1963. I know we keep bouncing back and touching upon the Cubans, because there are so many of them to cover. I won't even name them here, but there are incredible stories about folks like Sergio Aracha Smith, Eladio Del Valle. But let me back up here for a second, because any discussion about the Cubans has to take us way back into the late fifties so that we can talk about the transition from Batista and the intermingling of the mob on the Island and the connection of CIA interests in the Caribbean in general, where these three points of light came together. The CIA might have been interested in its war on communism, but in the end, the strange objectives of all of these parties made for interesting bedfellows. Oh my gosh, there is a whole series of episodes there, and we would definitely end up covering what happened in the aftermath of the Bay of Pigs, including things like Operation Mongoose, where the Kennedy administration pivoted to its next approach to removing Castro from power and democratizing Cuba. We haven't touched much upon the CIA yet. Even though we danced around the topics, so many rich topics, including Oswald's 201 file and the whole backdrop of the CIA involvement in the Bay of Pigs in the aftermath of that, you might be interested in the story of J.M. Wave, which was the largest CIA operation located in the Western Hemisphere, and I believe the second largest in the world at that time. And it was placed right on the campus of the University of Miami there were incredible characters involved in that operation back then men like Ted Shackley and you'll hear more interaction with characters like Maurice Bishop yes David Atlee Phillips this person we mentioned earlier and the connection that was uncovered by Jack Anderson the famous New York Times columnist and there was even a plot at one moment that was foiled at the last minute a plot that was designed to kill Anderson these folks would stop at nothing It gets even weirder when we figure out that there is a major character at the CIA. His name is Cord Meyer. And at one point in history, there was actually a thinking that JFK and Cord Meyer were considered intellectual equals and candidates in the same category for future greatness. Both born out of Eastern blue blood families and gone to Eastern schools with some level of preeminence and then an incredible and iconic twist of fate where Meyer and his beautiful wife Mary would divorce. Her name was Mary Pinchot Meyer, and after the divorce, Mary Pinchot Meyer became a lover of JFK. Even though the Meyers were divorced, there was perhaps a jealousy on Kordmeyer's part, and if you listen to Howard Hunt, possibly that is the case because he says Kordmeyer is one of the individuals who architected the assassination. It gets more weird because Mary Pinchot Meyer was Ben Bradley's sister-in-law. Ben Bradley was the editor of the Washington Post at one point. And at that moment in time, it was quite a close confidant relationship between he and JFK. Right after Mary Pinchot Meyer was murdered, and that was after JFK's assassination, but not long after. Well, guess who shows up onto the scene? James Angleton. And he shows up to retrieve her diary. The story is fascinating, and whether it was just purely in the name of national security or whether there was more to the involvement of James Angleton at that moment, well, you just have to hang out to listen to the episode when it comes out. How about the ultra-right winger who was captured on tape by an informant just weeks before the assassination saying that Kennedy would be hit and it would be using a high-powered rifle with shots taken from a high-rise building? I guess I already mentioned Mexico at least a couple of times, but there is a rich story of Mexico to be told, and it's not just about Scott's papers. We'll cover all that, I think, in a separate series of episodes. How about the CIA officer Richard Case Nagel, who walked into a bank and fired shots in order that he might be arrested and have an airtight alibi so that he couldn't be connected in any way to the assassination, patsy or otherwise? This is, in fact, one of the more bizarre stories of the JFK Enduring Secret. Let's see, what else? Well, we can't get out of here without talking about Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters and his connection to the principal mobsters who are the principal suspects, if you believe in the mob theory. He was a man who hated the Kennedys, and he didn't do so privately. He did so very publicly, and he was a man that knew violence well. Was his disappearance in any way connected to the Kennedy assassination? I think we've already covered Woody Harrelson's father, Charles Harrelson, in what is one of the more bizarre stories as well. A man high on drugs, cornered in the middle of the desert by Texas Rangers, screaming in essence that confession that he was part of the assassination team. A man himself who was the only man in a hundred years stretch, charged and convicted with killing a federal judge. How about the curious story of Yuri Yunosenko? That is one that I've already said we definitely have to tell. A man who actually reviewed Oswald's file when he was in Minsk, part of the security apparatus fairly high up and who defects afterward and that we have access to, to perhaps understand the real truth about whether or not Oswald was a Soviet agent or not. How about the garrison grand jury investigation and ultimately the Clay Shaw trial? I don't think there is any chance of us getting out of here without covering that and tying all of the curious characters together, most of them men from New Orleans, like Guy Bannister and Jack Martin. Talk about suspicious deaths. How about the story of Bernard Festerwald, a prominent attorney who was active in the Coalition on Political Assassination? How about more on the Russian community that Oswald interacted with? And perhaps the most important one of that group was George de Mornschild, who clearly had ties to the CIA and who himself had quite an odd and suspicious ending, apparently blowing his own brains out in Manalapan, which is a small town close to Palm Beach in Florida, near where I'm at. And he did so right around the time he was supposed to testify for the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Speaking of creepy CIA characters, how about Bill Harvey? Here was a guy famous for overseeing an underground spy tunnel in Berlin that was not so clandestine to the Soviets, but everyone on our side thought so. Another character that Howard Hunt said was part of the original assassination group Oh, and speaking of CIA players, we can't wait to air some of the testimony of Richard Helms, who was the director of plans at that time and eventually became the head of the CIA, and he was also eventually charged with perjury as the investigation of the CIA continued throughout the 60s. There are so many lesser-known players in this large play that we are bringing to you. How about people like Robert Gemberling, an FBI agent who is in charge of submitting the list of individuals who were written down in Oswald's notebook? and he conveniently deleted the name of FBI agent James Hosty. So many people with so many minor, well, major acts of the play. How about G. Ray Gill, the mob attorney for Carlos Marcello, and a man who represented in some way almost every witness brought to bear in the garrison trial? How about more on Marina Oswald? She was the woman who was closest to this man, and she herself might have had more deeper connections to the mother country. How about the story of Interpen? and Gary Patrick Hemming and Lauren Hall, crazy quasi-connections to the CIA, the Cubans, and men who clearly were accused at one point or another of being part of the assassination team or knowledgeable about its existence. How about poor Jacqueline Hess, who's another minor player in a way. She was the official researcher for the House Select Committee on Assassinations who had the overt responsibility of determining whether all of the suspicious deaths were in any way connected to the assassination. After much research, she concluded that they were not. I really have to scratch my head on that one. How about the story of uh, Erlaine Roberts and car number 207 that drove up and honked its horn at the rooming house where Oswald lived? Just moments within the time that he had reached the rooming house. It was a police car, and it did so within minutes of Oswald making his way back and changing before he headed for the Texas Theater. In a more broader sense, we might ask the question of whether or not there was a connection between RFK and JFK assassinations. I have someone who was close to this podcast who has urged me to do a series on RFK's assassination. That leads us into more surly questions of whether or not people like Marilyn Monroe and their deaths had any connection to any of this. Now, while that certainly had a connection to the story of the Kennedys, we don't know whether it had any connection at all to the assassinations. I could go on and on, but it's getting late, and I wanted to give you a flavor for what is coming. These are great stories, but they are like fingers on a lake. I think it's time for you to sit back and enjoy the wander, and I'll do my best to keep all of this in some form of logical sequence as best I can so that you, as a listener, can absorb it methodically, logically, well as much logic as can be applied to some of this because we are now in the world of the illogical and the world of speculation for some but we'll do our best on all of these topics please don't forget to reach out and give me your feedback and input at podcastjfk at gmail.com or post your ideas on the blog for episode 112 at www.podcastjfk.com see you again soon as we get back on the road and produce the next episode, 113. Thank you for listening to episode 112 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.